Here's something I can pretty much guarantee. If you went to the theater and the next day at work you told a friend about it, your friend did not respond by saying, Oh, wow, how did it smell? It turns out in Shakespeare's day, that was not such a safe bet. From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. These days, we're used to thinking about people going to the Elizabethan theater to hear a play. And why wouldn't they? One of the most glorious aspects of Shakespeare is the words. But Farrah Kareem Cooper and Tiffany Stern would like to invite you to see that world differently. In 2013, they edited a collection of essays written by themselves and nine other theater historians to give us an understanding of how, for Elizabethans, theater was a full-body experience. Their book, Shakespeare's Theater and the Effects of Performance, offers copious examples of just how playwrights did this. Fireworks, hissing and shooting across the stage, fake blood, fake body parts, disguises, paint on the walls and on actors' faces, the smell of blood and death, and worse. All of it designed to create wonder and sensation by appealing to every part of the body. Tiffany Stern is a professor of Shakespeare and early modern drama with the University of Birmingham's Shakespeare Institute at Stratford-upon-Avon. Farah Kareem Cooper is head of higher education and research at Shakespeare's Globe in London. They came in recently to talk about how 16th century theater companies wove physical and sensual staging effects into their productions. We call this podcast, Awake Your Senses. Tiffany and Farah are interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Can we clear something up right off the bat? I've heard scholars and, and people like theater historians say things like people in Elizabethan times went to hear a play. And, and that implies to me that theater going used to be more about the words rather than the whole theatrical experience of lighting and costumes and special effects. But then I read your book and it's just your whole book seems to be a rebuttal of that. So why don't we start with you, Tiffany? Is there a misconception about the experience of theater in Shakespeare's day? And, and if so, where does this bias or this interpretation come from? Uh, yes, there is a misconception. Um, the very word theatre, which was the name of the first round permanent theatre uh, in London, comes from the Greek and means to see. And Shakespeare talked equally about audience and auditors and about spectators. And throughout the early modern period, we have equal references to hearing and seeing plays. They're clearly both extremely important. And the oddity of picking the word here over the word see is traceable to a particular academic, and I don't think I'll go into that now. Um, I, it, it's just, it's it's become a misconception that's become a thing that school teachers say, and then, you know, but I think this book confronts that head on in a couple of ways. Firstly, I think uh, I give a couple of examples of Shakespeare talking about spectating, but also Lynn Triple writes a whole interesting chapter on the importance of the visual side of Shakespeare. And in fact, I think the whole book deals with Shakespeare as a man of the senses, aural, uh, visual, and touch and taste and all the senses. He, he's appealing to all of them. And we very much want to think of him as more than just a man of the word on the page. So Farah, is this a deliberate rebuttal, this collection of essays? 
Yes. I mean, it's certainly one of the reasons why I wanted to do it. Working at The Globe, where we were thinking about a new indoor theater, um, that phrase had come up a few times in our own committee that, you know, hearing a play, these were auditory spaces. So it was something that was very important to me because the theater spaces were places where bodies were pushed together. And the way in which you know things is through the body, and it's through the entire body. It's not just hearing. Um, and so this was a really important component of the work, which is why we have a whole section on the senses. Well, I didn't, I didn't know I was walking into an academic dust-up <laughs> when, when I asked this question. But I, I guess I thought it, it goes back to this idea that, that the theater experience in Elizabethan times and Shakespearean times was different from what we know now. And Tiffany, you wrote an essay that uh, explains this very well and says, and I'm going to quote from it, for instance, uh, theaters at the time offered an unchanging backdrop for every play mounted within them with universal lighting, which imposed the same mode on every play. And you go on to write that every play had essentially the same staging and that that explains the repeated plea for imagination throughout Shakespeare. So theater was a bit of a, a blank canvas. How was different was the experience back then from what we know now? Well, I think what I was trying to draw attention to in that essay is that, yes, um, actors and their bodies and their clothes and their props and their voices have to create some of these extraordinary differences. Um, so it puts a lot more pressure on other materials but the other point I was making is that we tend, in a rather blasé way, we often talk about something that we call meta-theatre, and that's where the theatre refers to the theatre. But I was saying that there are very complicated kinds of meta-theatre going on in that space, that that space has a bit of it called heaven and a bit of it called hell. So that when plays are being rather fictional about heaven and hell, they're also being extremely practical and factual about the stage on which they're occurring. And just to clarify, you mean heaven was whatever the rafters above the stage and hell is below the stage, an actual physical space, not just metaphorical? Yes, yes. Well, that was understood by Shakespeare, by, by playwrights, that there, that this is what the theater was called, but it was terminology that the people in the audience understood, right? That these areas were called heaven and hell, the same way we think about upstage and downstage. Yes, exactly. These, these were well-known terms. And in fact, they'll have been familiar with them anyway from things like churches, which also had a heavens above and, and hell was below. And, you know, we still have that kind of notional sense. Uh, the, 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 the name of the area that overhung the actors was the heavens. And it was also decorated with stars and little images of the sun and things. So it looked like heavens, but it was a fictional heavens. But that means when they, when Hamlet talks about this o'er-hanging firmament um, fretted with golden fire, he's on one level being fictional, talking about fictional heaven, but he's also in that stage pointing at the factual, actual heaven and talking about it. So Shakespeare loves this this mm. kind of layered meta-theatre where at your most factual, you're at your most fictional and sort of vice versa. And he plays with that all the time, with the pillars on the stage, mm. with, the, with the back of the stage that was called the scene. So whenever he refers to a scene, you're geographically thinking about the practical stage, but you're also metaphorically thinking about divisions in a play, but you're also practically hearing a person who's saying that. Oh, so in Hamlet, when the ghost is underneath the stage and he says, he says, swear, 
it has all of that extra meaning. Oh, yes, the audience know he's in hell. That's a thing. And and Hamlet goes, oh, I don't know whether this is really a ghost or or is it a goblin damned, you know, but the audience know. Hmm. Um, So this is really going to... So entrances and exits and positions on stage will really have extraordinary interpretive relevance to the audience. You give a lot of examples of this. The Witch's Cauldron (laughs) in Macbeth, which which sinks into the trap in the stage directions. Yeah, if if you go down that trap, it's always bad Hmm. because it goes down to hell. (laughs) And or otherwise, so you're that's using it Macbeth's as the grave. future. Yeah. So that means that that trap also has sort of accumulated resonance, and when any play uses it, it has the burden of all the other plays that have also used it and has affirmed and reaffirmed its meaning. And I think that's one thing that's just interesting about that theatre. There it is, sort of fixed, but affecting meaning and accumulating meaning with repeated performance, mm. like onion skin. I mean, the point of the book is to really make people aware of that but also how those effects work in concert with the writing itself. So it's not just about the language, but the language is obviously quite crucial to the entire process. At the same time, I think we'd got a little frustrated with the the schoolroom approach to Shakespeare, which doesn't go further than the book. We are both interested in theatre history and all the other stuff that theatre brings as well as the words. And we thought we'd like to get a group of really fine scholars who are also dear friends of ours and and get their wisdom on all sorts of different aspects of this. And they get into the real nitty gritty of how Shakespeare and, and the playwrights interwove the physical and sensual theater with the text. And... And I would like to ask you about the costumes, because in the same way that the sets were less elaborate and perhaps more metaphorical, were the costumes as well? For instance, Farah, did actors wear togas for the Roman plays? Well, the evidence we have suggests that they would have, but that they wouldn't necessarily have been bogged down in too much historical detail. So we have a a drawing by Henry Peacham, which scholars have suggested is a sort of scene from Titus Andronicus. And it shows the actors sort of lined up and some of them dressed clearly as Elizabethans, uh, but with perhaps a, a kind of Roman toga right across it. And for Shakespeare's audiences, you, sometimes all you needed was a few gestures here and there for the symbolic meaning to resonate. So, so the productions were in modern dress for the most part. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Julius Caesar refers to his doublet and... Cleopatra wants her lace cut. Yeah. So these are also references to the clothing of the time. And as it seems, they wore the clothing of the time, but with, as Farah says, a symbol of the period that they're representing. And of course, this was a highly um, symbolic world where gesture and prop might be enough to symbolise a place or an era. Mm. But there is, there's an interesting um, essay uh, in this book by Bridget Escombe, and she's talking about what does it mean when you have someone who disguises that the audience can see that it's the same actor, but the characters are taken in with the disguise. And what sort of awkwardness does it put on the audience and what sort of inter- what's the interpretive valence of of using costume as disguise versus using costume because now you're doubling and you're playing someone else. So she's interested in in the, the sort of information that costumes are giving and the way that audience would read them. And again, it's slightly different from us today, where disguise doesn't have the same resonance. 
unless you're watching Superman. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> or a pair of glasses can do all the work. <laughs> That's true. But yeah, the assumptions are different. That's right. And they are met- yeah. more metaphorical, but also more more shocking in a way. I'm also thinking, besides the trapdoors and, and the like, on the, the stage, the greatest effects were storms and particularly lightning. So... Why don't you just tell us very practically, how did Elizabethan theater companies make that effect? And what is, is it swivel? 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 Swivel and squibs. There were all kinds of pyrotechnics that were used in the theaters. It's fireworks terminology, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, And what is it? It's it's sort of a, um, you would have to have a rope tied on one side, and then you release a rocket that goes across to the other side, and it moves very, very quickly. It makes a, a sort of screeching or hissing noise. And it, what's interesting is that uh, Gwilym Jones, who wrote the essay about storms, talks about Shakespeare's theater of the globe as being a kind of new, innovative, technologically advanced theater space, and that the company wanted to sort of showcase its capacities by staging, in 1599, Julius Caesar, which has quite a few uh, requirements for pyrotechnics, including a storm. What's really fascinating about that is thinking about the fact that it may be that Shakespeare was the first playwright to have ever staged a storm in such a way. And I suppose some of the ways that they would do that is you've got to create the sound of thunder and you've got to create the effect of lightning. I've seen pictures of this. It's it's sometimes in the shape of a dragon. Yeah. <laughs> which is a great effect. It's a really great it's effect. It's like yeah. Disney Mulan or something. <laughs> yeah. And and his point is that um when in Julius Caesar you hear of sort of going through a tempest dropping fire. Mm. And and again, it's a sort of similar point that one might think that's sort of fictional, but it has also been factually staged. You have actually just seen this kind of supernatural storm happening on the stage. And he's interested to wonder whether that was a particularly globe thing and whether in the Black Friars, which was a quieter enclosed space, whether in fact they wouldn't have gone all out in the firework way in the way that you did at the Globe. So he makes an interesting comparison between Tempest taking place supernaturally and probably in a firework way in Julius Caesar and then the quieter, maybe more poetic Tempests of the Tempest, Mm. which he sees as not being embellished in quite the same way. And and very likely written for the Black Friars specifically, and so was very deliberate in the way in which it was sort of staging or representing storm effects. And it may have been the very first storm staged indoors as well. Oh, so the globe, which was outdoors in Black Friars, was indoors. Yes. So really, you're accommodating very different settings. Yeah. I mean, the two settings are very different. What's really fascinating is thinking about Shakespeare's repertory moving from the outdoors to the indoors and what accommodations or adjustments that Shakespeare and his company were making. And are they commercial accommodations? Oh God! I mean, would you say that? (laughs) Right? (laughs) They're always commercial. I mean, they you know they've they've got to make ends meet. I mean, these are guys who were sharers in a company, householders in the playhouse. Uh, It was very important to them that their plays uh, were appealing to as wide audience as possible. But there are practical differences. Mm. So when you're when you've got a much smaller space that's quite intimate, that's indoors, what might be a thrilling loud noise like a firework going off in the outdoor theatre might actually be 
deafening or unpleasant or downright dangerous. Mm. And and in fact, you know, at impractical. A, at, impractical in in an in an indoor wooden space, you just need to be very very careful mm. with those things. So almost certainly, for an indoor theatre, you're going to use something like a thunder run, which is you put a cannonball in in wooden a long trough. box, a trough, and and roll it along, and that makes your sound. And you can't really do lightning. And and Gwilym is interested in the Tempest saying that that thunder and lightning is heard mm. rather than seen for that indoor play. And how maybe that therefore puts a different pressure on the kinds of words you write for those spaces. Mm. I was struck, though, by just how much of a point that essay makes about how special effects were big selling points, as they are now, right? And and apparent and there was there's that line Casca has uh, during a storm about never till now did I go through a tempest dropping fire. <laughs> it's as if Shakespeare is saying, you know, look, look what we did. no one else has ever done this. I mean, and uh, you know, nowadays. We can see special effects on our screens, you know, in our phones. But it was such a rare thing. And to produce wonder was probably one of the chief aims of theater making in this period. Wonder is a very, very important psychological as well as philosophical response to theater and emotional response. Well, what about makeup and disguise? How did Elizabethan audiences view the use of of paint? And before we get – and you mentioned disguise in terms of people, but before we get to that, um, scenery. Were a lot of spaces painted, period, in in public space, you know, buildings or manor houses or churches? No. Well, it it depends on how you look at it. I mean, post-Reformation, the churches were whitewashed. But it was a very, very painted culture in medieval England. If there was a surface, you painted it. And so what you see is a kind of surrogacy of paint happening in other kinds of buildings like theaters, like big country homes, uh, where uh, huge amounts of money were were spent on paint. Uh, And, you know, there is evidence that they painted the theaters and that they were uh, very keen to upkeep that paint because it was an important visual component of their theater making. And what about face paint? How did Shakespearean audiences experience that in the context of what society thought about cosmetics? Well, it depends on how you look at it. What's interesting is that um, it was actually um, a kind of fledgling industry for women in the period, and there was a huge outcry against face painting. So the main sort of outcry against cosmetics came from a particular segment of society, which is largely puritanical. And and sometimes because of what we get in writing is the prescriptive discourse. We don't necessarily always see what's happening in practice. And actually, there were a lot of recipe manuals being published at the same time. So it suggests that face paint was quite common. You'd have seen a lot of audience members wearing it. And what was really wonderful about the theater is that actors were donning this face paint quite blatantly and openly and sort of revaluing it, giving it a kind of currency and an importance, while women in the social sphere were being uh, marked as prostitutes or people trying to trap men with their fake faces, their hypocritical faces. I mean, Andrea Stevens wrote a really wonderful essay in the book about paint as a way of achieving transformation of, of the body. So the body is a kind of, obviously, the actor's uh, main technology, but things like face paint, cosmetic paint, um, act as a transformative agent on the stage. And so paint is used not just in terms of creating femininity, but also it creates blood, ghosts. It was a useful thing for actors. 
Did it also, though, have many layers of meaning? I'm thinking the queen wears cosmetics, but respectable women might not or might be ashamed of it, or there was a debate about it? Yes, it had many layers of meaning. On one level, it's femininity. On another level, it sort of, I suppose, materializes the anxiety, uh, cultural anxiety about the discrepancies between appearance and reality, which is something that Shakespeare's plays are constantly grappling with. Like the theater itself, it was a form of hypocrisy. It was a lie. Uh, it was, And that's an what Hamlet says, of course. Mm. He, Hamlet says to Ophelia, I've heard of your painting. God hath given you one face and you give yourself another. Mm. It was a source of constant fear, mm. but that was actually because it was a constant thing. Yes, But I, I think the terminology of paint is interesting. We now call it makeup. We, we've made it different from the thing you put on houses. But it's interesting that they are using the same te- terminology and I, and the I think the too. same materials. Mm. So, yeah, it was a world of paint. It was a world of color. And it was a world of blood and stage blood. And I really like the chapter uh, <laughs> title, Enter Bleeding. <laughs> what what I, I did? I think that the chapter title is, in fact, They Eat Each Other's Arms. <laughs> <laughs> that is Lucy Munro's amazing chapter. Yeah, the, uh, yeah. So the best stage direction in early modern drama. And it's about stage blood. They eat each other's arms. Is that is that the same one? Its no, title is "They Eat Each Other's Arms: Stage Blood and Body Parts." Oh, right, 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 right. Okay, yes. But its title is "They Eat Each Other's Arms." Well, I love, I love this. I want to hear about not only prosthetics, but first stage blood. How much was it used in the theater, and how did they make it? Well, so Lucy Munro um, talks marvelously about this and the very different materials you might use for stage blood, which include animal blood. Uh, paint, obviously, which Andrea Stevens talks about, vinegar, vermilion, which you used in cosmetics. So there are all kinds of different things that might be used for blood. And as she points out, you really don't want your expensive clothes Mm. actually getting ruined with actual blood. So she looks at how carefully blood is used. You know, very often either it's on the face or on the arms, kind of cleanable. She did, or, she did quite an amazing yes. survey of yes. stage directions that require blood. And, and that's where the notion of interbleeding yes. comes from, mm. where it would, it would be, as Tiffany said, on your face or on your hands or on a prop of some kind, yes. a, a, yeah. a so handkerchief. So you'd come on with a bloody handkerchief mm. or with a bloody shirt or something. But she, she's able to point out how careful the staging is actually to avoid too much ruination of expensive stuffs uh, just because the bleeding's taken place. So you might also come on with a limb or, you know, a hand <laughs> or something. <laughs> and she's very interested in those. Or a head. <laughs> and she's really interested in those and kind of that hazy line between sort of realism mm. and kind of unbelievable symbolism and kind of fictionality. And I think maybe this whole book keeps getting at that moment where... As you think you get nearer the thing, you also get further away. away from the thing. It's, it's sort of Shakespeare constantly asking you to hold two things in mm. your view at the same time. And that's a really complicated position for the audience. Well, she, she says in that essay, I think, stage blood and violence against the human body represent in vivid theatrical fashion both the exercise of tyranny and attempts to control or preempt it. And there she's referring to the, the Roman plays, uh, Julius Caesar and, and, and Titus and, and so, again, clearly this is really 
complex and there are layers of meaning here, but was the motive sensationalism? I mean, selling tickets? Like with the flashy storm effects? I would say that may be one motive. But I also, yeah, I do think in that period that this was something that, like today, people are drawn to. I mean, you know, Game of Thrones has a massive following, and it's not just because of the interesting storylines. You know, there's quite a huge amount of sensationalism about it. But the sensationalism has meaning. It isn't just sensationalism. It is sensation. And I think that's the point we were trying to make, that these kinds of effects are essential to the meaning of the drama. So you can't stage a cultural aversion or horror to Roman ritual without demonstrating what that is. And of course, then, as now, blood means everything that we're scared of, pain Mm -hmm. and, and death, but it's also kind of vivid. It's an amazing prop. It also, you know, flows and moves if you're using any kind of liquid. And we've always been compelled by blood. But that doesn't mean it's just trivial. Mm. It's a huge symbol of many, many things. And and I think Lucy is steering clear from saying that it is one thing, but she's talking about the range of symbol and realism that it simultaneously covers and the fear and joy the audience simultaneously feel when they, when they see it then as now. Mm. It's also interesting, though, to place it in the context of the culture. I mean, the theater was competing with bear and dog fights, right? Blood sports, yes. Yes, Yes. Mm -hmm. in that theatre was in direct competition with bear baiting, which also took place in round outdoor spaces that looked very much like the round theatres and cost similar money. Yes, in that it was competing with that, that then makes it interesting when those moments when we think actual animal blood is being brought on the stage. Mm. And that then becomes very interesting because what you're getting then is the look of blood and the smell, smell. of blood, mm. you, you know. And I think, you know, if the audience is being denied the smell of blood and urine and death from the bear baiting, well, they're getting it in the theatre instead. Mm. So they're getting uh, <laughs> an equal experience. Well, that brings me to your chapter on smells <laughs> and, and what the theatre smelled like and how in one case the smells were part of the effect. Yes, give, give us that, an that's example Holly that. Dugan's amazing chapter, which is on the Hope Theatre, and that was a unique and very particular Mm. theatrical experiment, which ultimately didn't work. But the Hope Theatre was a round outdoor theatre that was, when first built, partly a bear-baiting pit and partly a theatre for actors. Um, So it divided the week between both. And what she draws attention to is, if you're a bear-baiting pit, then your place will smell of, of dead dog poo, um, you know. All roast the, pork. Roast, yes. All the, all the, my, my, my idea of hell. Yes. And, and that's what your space anyway smells of. And so she is very interested in Ben Johnson's Bartholomew Fair, the first play to be put on in that space. And this is a play that's very much about smell. It's about a fair and all the good and awful smells you get at the fair. And she is fascinated by the fact that this smelly play takes place in a smelly uh, environment. And again, she's intrigued by the interchange between those two. And then she also wonders when that same play then performed at court in Whitefriars, Mm. what difference will that have made? You know, now it's in a different smelling environment. How does that affect one's understanding of that play. 
So you can't, it's such a, it's all a plus, but hell smells like hell. And luckily it was built on a bear pit. Well, I do think all of this leads up to the um, $60,000 question, which is what there is to be learned by taking this more nuanced look at theater in this era and and the role of of senses, what what they played for theater goers and, and the actor's experience. Well, yeah, that is the $60 million question. I mean, I suppose it's as as students of Shakespeare, what we always want to do is to get to the bottom of his plays or to find out more, to find out what we didn't know before. And if we're constantly reading the plays just as pieces of literature or pieces of text, then that is really quite limiting at the end of the day because they were obviously conceived of as much more than that. And so when you understand the sort of experiential nature of these plays and that the language itself is speaking to that and gesturing to it, actually constantly the technologies and the uh, sensations of the body are sort of a a really key part of Shakespearean imagery. Then you get a I suppose, a much more well-rounded conversation with Shakespeare and the theatres of the time. Yes, and and I suppose what we're trying to get at is that theatre was a full-body experience for the actors and for the audience. It was the words. It was marvellously and fabulously the words. But it was the words and the other senses. It was an all-round incredible occasion. And, and I mean, you hear that when people went to the theatre, when they left, they'd be laughing, they'd be crying. You know, they had... Mm-hmm big emotional responses. Mm. And for us, it's therefore very sad when people get a bit holy about these plays, a bit careful about them, Mm. a bit somber about them, and lose the kind of feisty, extraordinary physicality. The sorality. Yes, Mm. yes, and which is part of the magic of them. That's exactly it. Reading the book, I was thinking, it brings this alive. You know, so many people have this feeling like, oh, this is this dead thing and I have to, or I might have to read it in school or it doesn't. It comes alive when you think of these living human bodies smelling and and yelling (laughs) things. Absolutely. But also, you know, modern theater experience is nothing like this. The modern theater experience is entirely mediated by staging, stage lighting, sometimes microphones, you don't have that sort of body-to-body connection. And you also, most of the time, are sitting in the dark. And so it's really important to think about Shakespeare's theater as a, a, a space where bodies are kind of pressed together because they would have had quite a lot of contact with each other. If you fit 3,000 spectators into a space that's about 82 to 90 feet in diameter, that's a mosh pit. <laughs> and if you think of it, if you think of the theater as a sort of amazing kind of instrument and the people in it are, are kind of what they're doing resonates against that painted wooden structure mm. and, and they're all part of the weird magic music that's being created in that instrument, which consists of actors and audience and and the smell and the look and, and the everything. Well, this has been so much fun and I really enjoyed the essays and I really enjoyed talking with you, Tiffany and Farah. Thank you so much. Thank you. Farah Kareem Cooper is head of higher education and research at Shakespeare's Globe in London. Tiffany Stern is professor of Shakespeare and early modern drama with the University of Birmingham's Shakespeare Institute at Stratford-upon-Avon. Their book, Shakespeare's Theatre and the Effects of Performance, was published by Arden Shakespeare in 2013. They were interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Awake Your Senses was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. 
It was edited by Gail Kern-Pastor and Esther Farrington. Esther French is the web producer. We had production help from Kathy Devlin and Dom Boucher at the Sound Company in London and Paul Luke and Andrew Feliciano at Voice Tracks West in Studio City, California. If you've been enjoying Shakespeare Unlimited, I hope you'll consider reviewing the podcast on whatever platform you get the podcast from. It helps us get the word out to people who haven't heard it, people who might enjoy it. We'd really appreciate your help. Thanks. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge and the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.